Welcome to the True Falls Film Festival. understand that there was this kind of therapeutic element to making something um, so I stuck to my you know guns and I was very principled in the style of film it was supposed to be and in that it lost a lot of the therapeutic elements hi welcome to the true false podcast presented by KBIA I'm Sebastián Martínez Valdivia, and before we get started, a brief announcement. Our longtime host and co-founder Allison Kofelt has gone west and left us for Utah. In addition to her work on the podcast, Allison was the Education and Outreach Director for Ragtag Film Society for four years, coordinating programs like the Summer Media Literacy Institute and Camp True False, among others. This podcast simply wouldn't exist without her, and we are deeply grateful. With that in mind, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Sebastian. I'm a full-time producer here at KBIA, and I'll be hosting the podcast from here on out. My day job is reporting on health, but I'm also a nonfiction filmmaker and a graduate of the Murray Center for Documentary Journalism here in Columbia. Anyway, it's been a while, so a reminder on how this podcast works. Every episode, we speak with a filmmaker about their films and some aspect of filmmaking. This week, we're speaking with Zia Anger, maybe best known for the music videos she's made with artists including Mitski, Angel Olsen, Maggie Rogers, and Jenny Ball. Anger's most recent work is called My First Film. It's an immersive solo performance that follows the production of a feature Anger worked on during grad school, combining clips from the film with videos sent to audience members' phones and text commentary typed in real time. It might seem like an unusual combination, but Anger says performance was something that drew her to filmmaking from the beginning. I actually did not grow up with TV except for two hours a week at my mom's house and then at my dad's house. I could watch endless amounts of TV and he would take me to like movies that are not are are not for children to see, you know, kind of like beat the Rocky Horror Picture Show into into my mind <laughs> in this way. And I think um, that when I went to undergrad, I thought I would do photography and then I took a film course. And I remember the first time I held a camera and you have to kind of direct people and you have to have people around you helping you. And I was like, I had played sports growing up and I was, it just clicked. I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm most comfortable doing. I mean, I always had liked and tried to do performing arts. And I think even in undergrad, the first class we went around, we said, why are you here? And I said, well, I would like to be an actress, but I don't think I'm beautiful enough to be an actress. So there was a certain fascination with it, but it was a, it was very mysterious. I had no idea why I was interested in that until I held the camera and kind of connected it to sports and, you know, what it means to be with a team. And, and that made me, uh, I, I just realized like right then and there, I was like, oh, I have to direct films. Like so connecting it. it to sports in terms of like collaboration. Yeah, yeah, and and then I had always liked I had always liked yeah I'd always liked art. You know I had been 
uh, drawn to photography and performing arts. But um, for performing arts and acting, I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that I could cut it. I mean, I had a lot of stage fright, too. So I just was like, this is something that I can't. I, I said it was because I wasn't pretty enough, but I think it was because I wasn't really brave enough to um, be on stage. I would always choke up or feel like I was going to cry or something like that. Um, so this just seemed like a very natural place for me to be where I could still be in it but not on screen. And then since then... I realized the value of like putting yourself in front of an audience, even if you're not comfortable with it or saying yes to being in somebody's film, even if you don't think you're a good actor, because it um, is really helpful as a director to find yourself on the other side of things. With my first film, the performance that you're currently touring, that's at the heart of it. You're exposing a lot of really personal things live in front of an audience. Yeah. Can you kind of describe um, that performance and, and how it came into into being? Yeah, so my first film charts the making of a failed feature film that I made while I was at grad school. And it came to be because I'd been performing with this um, music musical artist Jenny Vall and I was doing a lot of physical performance on stage and then I had the flu I was really really sick and we had done some like live video stuff that I was never really good at but I um because I was really sick and I couldn't physically move my body we had been developing this idea um you know using the phone to do images and go like dive into like our archive of images that we had assembled and use you know uh, filters on Snapchat or whatever as kind of this like background to the musical performance that was going on. And so I did that and it was the first time I thought, oh, I can, like, I'm not singing, but I'm really connecting with the audience. Like people would laugh when I would type something. And then my friend Mark Lukenville, who's a programmer, um, they were like, oh, you should come and show this abandoned work that you've t angrily tweeted about. And I was like, I'm never going to do that. And then I also said, I'm never going to do that, but if you have a good idea for how I could do that, then I'd be open to it. And they were just basically like, well, maybe you could do it in the way that you did the Jenny Vall performance, um, which, you know, would be kind of like some kind of commentary or presentation that's uh, interactive performance. So I did it um, first as a one-off, um, and I kind of prepared, but I was not emotionally prepared. Um, and I was also very hungover, and it was horrible. It was a horrible experience, but I knew in that moment, oh, this is this could be really good. Like this could be really good. And from there, I went and called the people that I knew that could really help me. Um, and I said, I have this thing. I need your help. It was Memory, which is a production company that does kind of like, besides producing documentaries and short films and different content, they also do live screenings strange live screenings, um, things you'd never see in a theater. And, um, and it was Marion Bale, who um, had just been named like the head programmer at Indie Memphis. And so they brought me to L.A. Memory brought me to L.A. and I did it there once. And then Marion brought me to Indie Memphis and I did it there once. And then I got feedback that like this is definitely something to pursue and started to get, you know, a certain amount of um, buzz surrounding it so I kind of just followed up with that and I was like okay I'm gonna keep doing it and it's interesting that so many like festival people and like programmers were involved in the development given a central part of 
the idea is that the film was rejected by so many festivals. Yeah, and our our immediate after we did Indie Memphis and the screening in LA, we kind of me and Memory made this decision to apply to a bunch of festivals to see if they would accept the performance. And we didn't have a screener. We just had a couple of clips and a description of what it was. But because they knew the programmers, you know, they were like, okay, well, we can talk to them. We can tell it what it is. Like, maybe we'll get in. And we applied to a handful of places. Some of them were places that had rejected the first film. And I kind of thought, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to get in. Like, this is, like, definitely, like, something special. And we got (laughs) rejected from every... Festival, which is interesting. Every festival but one. Um, we got rejected from, and that kind of, I didn't expect that to be like such a, like a knife to the stomach as it was. Um, but then my friend Jake Perlin, who programs at Metrograph, had heard about it. And Jake has always, in the same way Miriam or Memory, ha- has taken chances on me, even if they don't really know what I'm talking about. Jake was like, this sounds amazing. Let's do it at Metrograph. Um, and then my friend Monica, who runs um, Oceanfront, which is a performance space and residency in Brooklyn, she was like, well, come do this residency. So I did the residency in preparation for the Metrograph show. Um, and that was really where I found out what this piece was. So by the time I got to the Metrograph show, I was sure I really had something and like, fuck everybody who has rejected me because this is going to this is going to be something. And then we did it, and then somebody from Cinema Guild was there, and they were like, we want to distribute it. And so it kind of worked out perfectly. I think, actually, it works better not being at festivals. It works better, you know, the performance is not just about me being in the room, but it's also the performance of a programmer who rejects a piece because they don't understand it or they don't know what it is. So there's a certain amount of satisfaction in getting now to take it to all these places that, you know, it's been facilitated by memory or or Cinema Guild, or just kind of the people that are willing to take a chance on something um, that is uncharted territory is, you know, the positive, you know, part of the performance. Just like there's a negative part, which is programmers rejecting it. That's filmmaker and artist Zia Anger. Coming up after the break, Anger talks about the often toxic connection between work and self-worth and the fraught relationship between filmmakers and the systems they work within. I used to say I was rejected from every festival, and I've been trying to be better. Of course, it's in the moment, and sometimes I don't remember if I'm overcome by emotion. It's very hard to remember. But I try to say my film was rejected, not because I don't feel rejection, but because I think it's really valuable to start to understand your worth beyond the ways that um, kind of traditional capitalist society accepts you. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the True False Podcast, presented by KBIA. Let's get back to our conversation with filmmaker Zia Anger. The knife to the to the gut feeling that you described is very relatable. Um, it's kind of hard to extricate your self worth from your work being rejected. Yeah. Um, and I like never feel more hopeless than after something's been rejected, even if I didn't expect it to actually get in. I've been in the performance. I've been trying to change my language surrounding how I speak about the initial rejection of the first film um, 
because I used to say I was rejected from every festival, and I've been trying to be better. Of course, it's in the moment, and sometimes I don't remember if I'm overcome by emotion. It's very hard to remember, but I try to say my film was rejected, not because I don't feel rejection, but because I think it's really valuable to start to understand your worth beyond the ways that um, kind of traditional capitalist society accepts you. And and um, it's kind of, you know, an endless affirmation of being like, okay, my work was rejected and it's impossible to separate me from my work. But in fact, I wasn't rejected. I'm still making things and I can continue to make things. Um, because for so long, the idea of myself being rejected kept me from making things or from finishing things or from trying again. I mean, that's like the evil trick of capitalism. You associate your self-worth with your work so much that um, you get tricked into just becoming another cog in the machine that can only make things that will definitely be accepted and that's really boring for audiences. Um, or you just quit and give up, which is something that, you know, for a long time I've always thought I was going to do. I have always have had this idea of going out into the woods in a cabin and, like, taking care of dogs. <laughs> that's my, like, secret. That sounds really nice, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, that's my secret. That's, like, my secret. Like, that's what I would do if this doesn't work out, being a filmmaker, yeah. being, being an artist. That's a really good fallback plan, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's really interesting, too, uh, I, I mean, you mentioning, like, the capitalist system, because so much of these film festivals, and, and you have... Uh, a, a feedback that you got um, that you have in um, my first film where your work was called Esoteric. And a lot of the time when people talk about your work, they talk about how you askew traditional narrative, mm -hmm. which in reality is like Western narrative. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in how you feel about to get into film festivals. It's like you're selling your film. Mm -hmm. And to sell your film, you have to make it conform to that yeah. familiar structure. Yeah. Um, and so how, how do you feel like my first film fits into that? So the original, like, nasty tweet that I wrote was because I had found out that my film was considered abandoned by IMDb. And it kind of happened because of me. I emailed them. I was trying to find financing for what will be considered my first feature. And I went to look at my IMDb page because I know people look there. And I saw that the original film... Um, had the date of 2012, and in big letters it said... Um, in post-production next to it. So I emailed IMDb and I said, can you remove this listing? And then a month later I revisited it, the listing to see what it looked like. And now in bigger red letters, it said abandoned. And I was like, this is so crazy because I, I didn't abandon this film. I actually tried really hard to get people to see it and to get it in front of an audience and it didn't work. And it didn't work not through lack of trying it worked through the lack of imagination that is very that is really able to imagine stories about like young boys on skateboards and young boys coming of age and young boys or you know young men you know having a drug problem or like whatever the trope is it's really easy to imagine that because that's a really easy thing to sell what's really hard is to sell a film that's about a young woman who has dreams and hopes and desires and goes through some sort of transformation. And, of course, there are plenty of movies about young women that have that, that have been remarkably successful, but it's always within the capitalist structure that they're successful. 
It's not in their own, you know, mind. Oh, yes, there are a few people like, you know, Jane Campion does it really well. There's a few people, there's a few women directors that do it very well, but there's no space for any woman to come in. So I, I wrote this angry tweet basically saying like, um, I actually didn't abandon this work. Like you guys didn't accept it. And like now this has to follow me around. So in making the performance and creating the performance, I was thinking a lot about rebirth and resurrection, which is very interesting considering the first film's um, narrative, you know, narrative. Um, and I was thinking a lot about what are the ways in which not to abandon something and how, what have I done in the past, which is abort work. I, I, if, I, if I couldn't see a way to get my film seen by people, um, I would abort it because of this very bad experience of being rejected from festivals. But this was a new idea, which was not about aborting anything or abandoning anything, but resurrecting it, like calling it dead it's dead. I didn't kill it, but it died. <laughs> and then and then thinking about, well, what is it for it to come back to life in a way that's really meaningful? Um, and once I developed it more, really po- positive and really exciting for people to watch, and they leave being just really invigorated um, and really, like, thrilled to go out and make their own stuff. I used to be really opposed to catharsis in movies, which is crazy if you want to make movies because the five-act structure, the three-act structure, whatever you want to call it, which everybody is supposed to follow, it demands that you create catharsis. And I was really, really against that because I thought, well, nobody's going to see something and then want to go out and do something that changes the way that they're living or the world that they're living in. But this has been very interesting because I've kind of come to peace with catharsis in a way that I realize that it's more powerful or it has the potential to be more powerful if if wielded in the right way to make people actually be excited and happy and ready to do something. But that's a very like that's, you know, that's a that w- that took me a lot of time to to get to the point where I could become com- comfortable with using catharsis as a means for change. And it, it's kind of different, right? Because, like, if you think about catharsis, like, traditionally, whatever, it's an ending. And here it's more of, like, an impetus to, like, start yeah, something. Yeah. It's a beginning. Yeah. It, it's, very, it's very active. And in the performance, I, you know, really um, applaud and kind of um, try to convey that the audience must be active throughout the performance. And that activity is really important within the theater because then when you leave you're feeling like cathartic and you're feeling great but you also feel this need to like be active and to be um in conversation with the other people around you that you just saw it with which was always what I wanted my films to be but I didn't until now have a way to actually do that you know the whole performance and the um interactive element is it's not about following directions but it's about being present and aware of what's going on and realizing that like everything that you're reading and you're watching has meaning to it and you like have to try your best to take that all in um so yeah it's a lot of it is like demonstrative Mm. it's very demonstrative and it's about stuff that I've learned that I want to share with other people and in that way it's a bit didactic but 
um, I'm so not academic that like I, I don't worry about it being didactic or being too preachy or teaching. Uh, and it kind of just is a really basic demonstration. <laughs> I don't think it comes off that way because it's so personal as well. Yeah, it's so yeah. much about your experience yeah. that it doesn't really read that way. Yeah. You mentioned briefly, um, looking back at when you first realized that it, your film had been uh, marked as abandoned, when you were looking back at your body of work because you wanted to make something new, which is a crucial part of the process in this system. And a lot of your work has been in music videos. And they're very, like, kind of disparate stylistically. You, you try a lot of different things. You do a lot of different things. Um, and so if you're trying to find a through line, I mean, that's sometimes fraught from the beginning, mm -hmm. regardless of the work. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that you've mentioned before is uh, an idea of being haunted by your former self. Yeah. Um, and it's, like, kind of literally in, in one of your videos for Juliana Barwick mm -hmm. and, like, one of the Maggie Rogers videos also has her playing kind of a similar role. Yeah. How do you, do you feel like my first film, when you're reflecting on this former self um, and its connection to your present self. Do you feel like that fits into that at all? Yeah, I think when I made my first film, you know, I was really trying to, as best I could, process a lot of traumatic things that had happened to me, but I didn't know that I was doing that. I didn't understand that there was this kind of therapeutic element to making something. Um, so I stuck to my, you know, guns and I... Um, was very principled in the style of film it was supposed to be and in that it lost a lot of the therapeutic elements. You know, it's very slow and it's um, very quiet at times and it's not truthful a lot of the time. And it juxtaposes so greatly how I was at that time, which was fucking off the wall, bonkers on Adderall, like zero pounds, like running many, many miles a day and biking many, many miles more. You show a clip in the performance of that stage of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't think it functioned in a therapeutic way as much as I was, you know, making it in reaction to something that had happened to me. And now I look back on it... Um, and I realized that that's what it what it was um, functioning as, and I am you know in developing it, I'm able to cry a lot, and you know really feel like a great amount of I'm gonna cry right now, <laughs> feel um, a great amount of respect for the person that I was, who was in a like a huge amount of pain, and also respect that like I'm still somebody who has a lot of pain from this experience in my life. And music videos have become really exciting for me because they're not about me. They're usually, when I'm conceiving of a music video, oftentimes I'll think about the character being haunted or I'll think about, you know, I'll ask the artist, what, what did you make this because of? Like, how can we work that in? In a, usually it's in a physical way. Um, and it, and those are things that um, are very clear, and and they allowed me um, through physical performance, mostly like a lot of these things are very physical. I think that's those are the videos that you're talking about. It allowed me to kind of like not make something that's slow or boring, like make something that is really painful, and and learn about making things that like have a lot of spirit to them, and and are able to like 
hold trauma and acknowledge it, even if it's, you know, very abstract, even if it's very abstract. I mean, um, there's one music video that's like my favorite one that I that I that I always think about was this one with Juliana Barwick where she's crawling and she's crawling and she's crawling and she's trying to get to this place. Um, and it was amazing because she had actually broken her foot. And so the idea was kind of always to have her crawl at some point. But um, because she had broken her foot, we were really able to kind of like think about the mechanics of that and like do that all day and, you know, really think about like what injury means and what like what it is to be not able to not able to walk. And that was um, really exciting. It's the same with the Maggie Rogers video um, where it's called Falling Water. And that one was really interesting because I had done a whole set of videos with her before and then she had gone off and written this whole album that was um, talking a lot about how the time, in the time period that we were making those music videos, like there was a lot of pain involved. And so that was really exciting. We got to work with this amazing choreographer, Emma Portner. We got to kind of talk about like, well, what is it like to feel possessed and also to like feel possessed and want to like, you know, get rid of that possession. And um, yeah, the, the, both of those videos, a lot of the videos, I, I oftentimes try to think about like, well, what is the backstory here? And um, being more in touch with myself and not being on as many drugs at this point in my life helps me to to not try to pretend that I'm a filmmaker that I'm not and just really, you know, dig in and like I said, find the spirit of, you know, what I what I or like what the story or the narrative or, you know, the idea is. One of your first films is uh, a phone conversation with your your father. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's as far as like documentary goes, it kind of like reminded me of Chantal Ackerman's like um, News from Home, mm-hmm. um, where it's it's very like it's very personal. Yeah. Um, but it also you wouldn't see it on like PBS or something. Yeah. yeah. But do you think there's like documentary elements to my first film? Yeah, I I mean I think that yes, it's it's very much about an experience that I had making something, and in that. Right. There's this idea that this is like an authoritative view. This is a document that or whatever. This is this is something that is explaining something that happened. But within it, I also um, talk a lot about like truth and what are true stories and what aren't true stories. And that, you know, maybe is more in line with the new trend in certain documentaries that is considering like what is truth and um how could you ever be truthful when you have cameras in front of people um but I do think it kind of brushes up against a lot of questions that I see a lot of filmmakers that I really like um asking which is about you know who what is the truth of a story? Who has the permission to tell a story? What happens if, you know, in the moment you think that this is a really true thing and then something changes in society and two years later it actually isn't true? And also, do people really care about what's real? Because a lot of the, the stories that I tell, I've workshopped to the point where some of them are real, but some of them are, you know, cinematic 
um, <laughs> excursions that that work better for an audience, but aren't necessarily the reality of what I actually feel. Um, so I'm very in touch with that. I think it's really helpful for probably for any filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. It's really helpful to like know when you're lying and when you're not lying, and be able to acknowledge I'm lying. Um, even if you don't do that in the film to be able to acknowledge to yourself, yeah, I'm lying um, or I'm not lying. Like this is really true. Or maybe this, this is the truth that I know, but it's not always um, true for everybody. There, there's a bit of the element of um, kind of, you know, going up there and for part of the performance playing somebody who's really stupid. I mean, there's a lot of times where I come off as a really stupid, sarcastic person Um and then there's other times where I try to be very smart and very funny. Um, and But all of those are kind of practices in, um, you know, what it means to be a storyteller and what it means to make something that a lot of people are going to see. Zia Anger is the artist and filmmaker behind My First Film, a multimedia performance she's currently touring. You can find upcoming performance dates at memory.is, and you can find more of her work at ziaanger.com. That's it for this week's episode of the True False Podcast. Our music is by Tim Pilcher using Sounds from the Fest. You can find more episodes on your podcast app of choice or at kbia.org. We are so excited to be bringing you another season of the show, and we have a lot of interesting conversations coming up, as well as a preview of this year's festival program. The festival is online at truefalse.org and on Twitter at truefalse, and you can find me at Sebastian Sings. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>